in a world where most people watch movies and then forget about them. These brave heroes join forces to watch them again and then talk about them. Join them in their epic journey as they go back in time, a decade and beyond, to revisit and break down films from a vast array of genres. Do these movies hold up over time? Are they classics? Find out on Retro Movie Roundtable. Starring your hosts, Brian Fry, Chad Robinson, Destin Melbarnes, Nathan Lutz, and Russell Guest. Coming now to Headphones in Your Ears. Welcome all you lords, ladies, and knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. Welcome to the show where we watch movies and then talk about them. I'm your host, Russell Guest, and joining me today are my good friends and co-hosts, Chad Robinson from right here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. How you doing, sir? Well, I'm a Cowboys fan, and we just had our playoff game, so I am a sad, sad panda. Yeah, yeah, Seedor's soon to join you, but I can at least say that they lasted longer in the playoffs just by virtue of having a later game in the day, so they have that. Now, over to the West Coast in Washington, Mr. Brian Fry. How you doing, sir? Ah, uh, not bad, Russ. Chad, it could be worse. You could have lost to the Jags. <laughs> oh, poor Colts. Yes. All right. This is fitting intro because we are doing a sports movie today, but this is also a movie that has a lot of cycling in it. So we want to talk about your first bicycle. Tell us what was your first bicycle like and what did you love about it, Chad? I had a little green Huffy. And honestly, where I first grew up, I moved around quite a bit. It had way too many hills, so I didn't get much use out of it. But my second bike was a Schwinn. And man, I rode that thing to death. We had a new neighborhood, rode it all around. Took it with me on trails. So, yeah, positive experiences with bikes growing up. All right. Fry, what about you? What was your first bike's a big deal to a kid? What was your first bike? So, I, this is an interesting uh, tidbit about me. I didn't actually end up learning to ride a bike until my early teens. Well, wow. it harder to do it that way? Like, I mean, like, was it hard or did you get it pretty fast? Where I grew up as a child was a death hill that, like, to this, it's true. E- e- even as an experienced bicycle or a bicyclist now, like that would have been a challenging place. I, you know, yeah, I just I, I look back on it and think, well, yeah, there's really nowhere he could have taught me to ride a bike. So I think it just kind of got pushed back for a while. And uh, anyway, once I finally did, uh, I learned on a cul-de-sac, which is probably as about as uh, suburban as you can get. I, I remember picking it up in a weekend. It wasn't like a, a trial of anything. It was just kind of a Saturday I couldn't, Sunday I could. I, I like the idea of Brian just walking around uh, going like, guess what I did? Learned how to ride a bicycle. Yeah. My first bike was a mountain trek. It was, well, let's call it Royal Blue. I was completely obsessed with various water bottles to put in it for whatever reason. Yeah. yeah the hardest thing is finding adult training wheels. <laughs> yeah my first bike my my first bike was uh bright red it had training wheels on it and then i remember they came off kind of quickly uh what is the last movie you saw chad i watched disney's encanto i was initially kind of concerned that we were retreading some uh some territory but you know what this was completely different than what i expected i thought it was a charming and fun movie that i definitely recommend Okay. And Brian, what about you? What was the last movie you saw? Uh, that would be uh, Marvel's Eternals. You didn't sound excited just now. <laughs> I, well, look, there, there are some things to like in it, but it truly was 
a metaphorical people mover to introduce phase four. Okay. It doesn't stand up well as a movie by itself. Like if they had made that with all their hopes and dreams of the MCU relying on it instead of Iron Man one, it would not have gone well. Yeah. And for me, my last movie was Insidious two. Uh, I just took a long time to get around to it. I, I saw the first one and then I was frustrated. Like that was two halves of a movie that were different movies. So I just put it down for a long time. Came back to it now, and this movie's more tonally consistent, so I'll give it that. Uh, it's a fine movie. It's it's more of uh, I don't think it has a lot of rewatch value necessarily, but um, I'm not angry I watched it or anything. The really amusing part of this is after watching it the very next day, I went out to the comic book store to clear out my box and picked up a bunch of X-Men comics and just sat there in the car thinking, soon, soon. <laughs> One day there will be mutants. All right, today's movie will be what, Brian? We are doing 1979's Breaking Away by Peter Yates. That's right. So Dennis, this movie stars Dennis, Dennis Christopher, Dennis Quaid, and other people whose names are not Dennis, like Daniel Stern, Jack Earl Haley, Barbara Barry, Paul Dooley, and Robin Douglas. It grosses $16.4 million, placing it at 41st on the box office that year. It comes in behind Prophecy and ahead of the movie Hair. And the number one movie from 1979 was Kramer vs. Kramer. And the IMDb rating on Breaking Away is pretty strong. It's 7.7. But even stronger than that are the critics meter for Breaking Away. It's a 95%. And the audience score is an 88% as well. So this is a well-loved movie. Academy Award winner for Best Screenplay, written directly for the screen by Stephen Tesh. There's four Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Supporting Actress for Barbara Berry, Best Original Score and Song and its Adaptation Score. It won the Golden Globe for Best Motion Picture, Musical or Comedy, and it was nominated for three more Golden Globes for Best Director, Best Screenplay, New Star of the Year. It won a BAFTA. It won the Writers Guild of America Award. It is an AFI 100 Years of Cheers. Uh, which was the most inspiring movies of all time. And they place it at the number eight movie on the most inspiring films of all time. And the AFI did their top 10 sports movies and they placed it at eight. Uh, so, and if that's not enough, Ebert, who was not always this easy to go all the way out, he gives it four out of four stars. It's a breaking movie. is a movie to embrace. It's about people who are complicated but decent, who are optimists but see things realistically, who are fundamentally comic characters but have three dimensions. It's all about middle America. We rarely see it in the movies. And yes, it's not corny. It doesn't condescend. And movies like this are hardly ever made at all. And when they're made this well, they're precious cinematic miracles. So I think he liked it. Now, Chad, what about you? Had you seen this one before? I hadn't, and had, had I seen it, I would have initially come up with a complaint. Please stop nominating these types of movies as best comedy. Movies that have funny moments in them are not comedies. Like, this is a drama, first and foremost. I don't think I laughed the entire movie. Right? Yeah. So I didn't know what to expect. Russell, you gave me a little bit of a background. You said it's a bicycle movie, which is like, all right, where where's this going to go? So I was looking forward to it. it it's put in sports. I, I'm not sure where I would... I don't know that I would call this a sports movie. I'm just going to dump all over all the genres, I guess, for this movie. I'll give it the sports movie titling. That part I can wrap my head around the comedy pieces is reach. It felt like Ben-Hur with 
Like, are we classifying Ben Hur as a sports movie because the chariot race is in it? But, but yeah, I, I I did enjoy it. Russell's Russell's probably getting annoyed with me right now, but I I did enjoy it. So it was a good dealer's choice. It was something new that I hadn't seen. So I always appreciate that. Yeah. Now, Fry, had you done this one before? I had never seen this before. Um, I was actually uh, I was pleasantly surprised uh, picking up a, a bicycle movie. I was like, okay, there's a sports genre I haven't dove into. Coincidentally, I really wanted to mess with you when you had me do the intro for this. I wanted to be like, oh yeah, we're doing 1986's Rad. So yeah, another bicycle movie, which looks far worse than this. Wait, there are two bicycle movies? Oh, uh, there's several. I, I, I was actually... Yeah, there's actually... there's You can find other cycling movies if you're into this. Yeah. I definitely agree with Chad, obviously, about the uh, comedy piece. I understand the sports piece. I, I've, you know, that, that part was actually probably the most enjoyable part of the film. But no, I'd never seen... I'd never even heard of this movie before. Oh, okay. See, I encountered this one... I was in early high school, maybe 10th grade or so, and I was just flipping through the channels. AMC was on... And I got hooked. I came in the middle of one of these like racing scenes. Like it was, uh, you know, the Tour de France was a big deal all of a sudden in America for their, and like Lance Armstrong was inspiring all of America before, unfortunately, um, it was found that he cheated. But I mean, still, it was a good moment for cycling uh, in America. And it was, this movie was being played on TV and I was sucked in right away. Now, I don't come in the middle of movies, so it was with great reluctance that I was like, I don't know what this is, but I found out what it was so I could come back to it. It re-aired again. I don't think it was a whole nother year. It didn't take me that long to get back to it. And um, I caught it at the beginning because I, I saw it on the guide and I was like, I need to see that movie. And I sat down and started watching. My dad joined me and he knew it as well. And he's like, oh yeah, that's a great movie. And we sat down and we watched it. And it's funny I think in the same way, I think we covered The Graduate as being listed as a comedy. I don't necessarily say it's a comedy, but I do believe that there are funny things within it. So I think if you go back to our Out of Towners episode, Neil Simon, great comedy writer, or sorry, great playwright, said, I put comedy in my dramas and I put dramas in my comedies because that's just the way life is. It's not all one or the other. That tends to lead to more heartwarming things that don't necessarily get more laughs out of the crowd, but get more, get more claps, more cheers, and people connect with it. And I think in the same way that that happened, I think that happened here. This movie is a strange combination for me. It just, it warms my heart. It is very inspiring. Um, but also there's a, there's a degree of like, I feel really connected to these characters because it's very well written. And so I was captivated with it right away. I introduced it to Mary in college. I, I watched it with another one of my roommates in college on a separate occasion. So I've, uh, I have kept this movie alive by showing it to a lot of people and I'm happy to share it with you guys now. So needless to say, I'm a huge fan of this one. I was pretty excited. I could buy it on Apple for $5. Yeah. I actually ended up purchasing it as well because it wasn't, I didn't see any point to renting it. Uh, if with, with it being so cheap. Yeah. Like it's $1 more to buy it. I, I, I think they should almost have a warning being like, are you sure you want to rent this? Uh, right. Exactly. Um, anyway, we're going to spoil this movie when you get into it here. So, uh, there will be, there'll be a commercial break, but after that, there will be spoilers that lie ahead. Welcome to the Flashback Flicks Retro Movie Podcast. I'm Ricky. I'm Grayson. And every week we review a movie from the past and reflect on things we missed, things we loved, and things we want to see again. 
Yeah, because we believe any movie worth watching is worth watching again. So if you like films, friendship, and a lot of callbacks, I mean, just so many callbacks, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or wherever RSS feeds go for like-minded, movie-loving individuals like you. What happens when two modern film fans go back and rewatch all the old classic films from yesteryear to see if they hold up? You get the Classic Film Jerks podcast. Find the Classic Film Jerks podcast on all the major platforms. All right, we're back. And this is your final warning. There will be spoilers that lie ahead. So, Chad, for those who haven't seen Breaking Away since 1979, do you want to refresh people's memory? Absolutely. So we've got four friends, Dave, Mike, Zero, and Moocher. They're a group of 19-year-olds in the working-class town of Bloomington, Indiana, and they're really not sure what to do with their lives. They spend their day swimming in a water-filled quarry and avoid doing any work. Dave Stoller, one of the friends, is obsessed with competitive bicycle racing, and particularly the Italian racers. He's so obsessed, he adopts Italian mannerisms, speech and culture, and other kind of annoying tics. He develops a crush on a university girl named Catherine, who he calls Katarina, and pretends to be an exchange student. The college frat boy finds out about Dave's crush, and him and his other frat bros beat up Cyril, Dave's friend, who helped him serenade Catherine. The other friends insist on tracking down the frat boys, and they start a brawl in the cafeteria. The university president chides the fraternity and invites the Cutters, which is a derogatory name for the boys, to participate in the Little 500 Bicycle Race. Meanwhile, a professional Italian cycling team comes to town and Dave is super excited to compete with them. Unfortunately, the Italians cheat and they cause Dave to wreck, which leaves him disillusioned but far less annoying. He drops the phony accent and confesses to Catherine, who slaps him and leaves. The friends compete in the Little 500 and Dave is so much better at cycling that he builds up a three-quarters lap lead before getting injured. The other friends take turns, but they're really not very good. They start losing the lead. So finally, Dave taps back in. He's taped to the pedals and he overtakes the fraternity guy who beat up his friend for the lead and wins it all. Dave's overbearing and frankly really racist father has a change of heart and becomes proud of his son even at opting to ride a bicycle himself. He's a used car salesman. Dave meets a pretty French exchange student after enrolling at the university, and he seems to take up his old antics by saying bonjour to his father as he passes by. We each grew up in West Virginia, and our hometown was in Charleston, West Virginia, and it, it is a declining city, and it's half the size that it once was. It's less than half the size. And it's interesting. There's part of us that connects with me in some way of just seeing this this town that has two two sides. And as your parents and siblings and all of you, they desired and you grew up and you moved out. Did you ever feel like stuck in this area of decline that like was forcing you out? But have you also ever thought about what if you couldn't get out? Like what if you were kind of in that, uh, if you were kind of stuck in that world? Yeah, I... I never really considered staying in Charleston, to be honest. And that's that's not to put down Charleston, West Virginia. I love being from West Virginia. For me, it wasn't so much economics. I just needed a change of scenery for my life. I just really didn't feel like there was anything for me back home. 
So leaving just meant doing things my way, free from parental oversight and judgment, new friends, new placement places, new community, just a fresh start for me. So economics didn't play that much. I had opportunities to come back to West Virginia a couple of times. Now, that time economics did come in and said, you know, I, I don't know that the stability that I want in my life is going to be there. But growing up, I, I guess I didn't feel trapped. There are quite a few coal mining communities and things like that. Charleston's unique. It's more... It's the capital. Yeah, it's, it's urban. There are coal mining communities, plants all over the place in Charleston that I'm sure people feel trapped. Ravensburg, places like that. Yeah. And actually, I did look it up. Bloomington is actually about twice the size of Charleston. So, but uh, Fry, what about you? Well, initially left West Virginia uh, for, well, I left Charleston for school. So I don't know. I, I know the e- easy answer here is no. I, I never felt trapped there. I moved back after school for a brief time, but I was just as excited to pick up and and move somewhere else. And I've always been fairly nomadic anyway. I prefer, you know, experiencing a wide variety of places. But I will say this, I've had the thought more often than not, you know, blank wouldn't be happening if if I were back in Charleston, West Virginia. So I do miss the comfort of home. Because, you know, a lot of what I've experienced abroad has not been favorable based on what home was like. Yeah. And I think this conversation drifted in a different direction then. So what I was kind of also asking is, have you ever stopped to ask yourself, so you guys both went to college, you got out and you did your own thing. And I think you didn't feel trapped because you felt like you were in the, that path to be able to have that option there should you want to. Have you ever stopped and thought to yourself, what if you didn't have that? Like if you were more stuck i think there's there was such pressure i don't even know if it was pressure it was just expected of me you're going to go to college that yeah it's it's hard to consider i do i do remember working with some people in the stock room and one guy was very excited for me and he came from obviously a different background it's like oh you got into wvu awesome man great that's awesome yeah for for other people, it, it was a big deal to be able to leave home. But yeah, for me, it, it was just always the expectation. Yeah. So I guess what I'm kind of getting at is I had some friends that, that would have liked to have gone to college and the resources weren't there or maybe their academics weren't there or they needed more help through school. And whereas maybe I might have gotten some tutoring or some help from my parents, they might have had parents that didn't know well enough to be able to help them or didn't have the assets to be able to pay for them to get the help that they needed and they didn't get there and they might have landed in other careers and i i myself did put myself in their shoes and sit there and say like i mean that that hurts to watch somebody who wants it and not be able to get to it and so through you know one of them being quite a close friend and so to see this movie made me connect to that because there's the cutters and there's the college cultural divide here in this movie. And uh, the Cutters being the townies, or an actual Bloomington, Indiana, they're actually called stoners, or stonies, but they changed that in this movie just to not have a drug association with it. Although I, <laughs> I kept thinking, like, don't you then automatically have a suicide association with it? It's like, it's like why don't you go kill yourself, Cutter? So, um, no, it's not people who cut their wrists. It's people who cut limestone. But there's these two classes, or two different sides of the tracks, if you will. And I found that 
dynamic really good because we watch the four friends quite honestly resenting what they can't have. And it makes all the sense in the world that you would feel that way. Dave is smarter and has the ability to potentially go that way, but he feels pulled. He, his friends, the people who he's connected to, even his father, aren't of that world. And so he would be potentially alienating all of those who are close to him by going there. He has grown up understanding that they're not somebody that he wants to be like, and yet he, it is what provides a better future. And so he is really torn in this, and that's really an interesting place to see. Do I betray those who are around me, or do I take what's out there? And then there's also this fear of leaving all of those behind me by doing that and entering this world that never felt right to me. Yeah, his, like Mike, I, I think of, this is a weird group of friends, by the way. I, I feel like I need a backstory as to how these people became associated with each other. Because you've got Geeky Dave, you've got Moocher, who just, he seems like the, the young kid. I know they're all supposed to be the same age. Cyril is dumb, and then you've got Mike, who is the former jock, who's talking about his glory days of high school football. It's like, okay, I know your character. I know what to do with you, and he's just dragging down all his friends. That was Dennis Quaid's character, so he was an interesting one. That they're actively antagonizing Moocher from getting a job and being productive members of society, which it it is. It's a different world where they're. They prank the car wash guy by pretending to be employed and then walk, run away and break his time clock. I don't think they were pretending. I think Mutra was going to work there. And he insulted him and was so condescending, he instantly, before he even began the job, left. And if you hadn't noticed, like Marty McFly being called chicken, like that just, that's it for him. Calling him short, short stuff or a shorty or midget, you know, he can't, he can't cope with that. And so he just smashes the the clock and then drives off in the in the distance uh so i thought that was a pretty funny scene but uh yeah they they just agreed they graduated from high school and before they go into the real world they took a year off and their parents and whatnot and support groups either i didn't care or let them do so to me it kind of reminds me of when i graduated from college and you kind of have this moment of like where am i going to go what am i going to do and so that's also um, an important part of growing up that connected with me i mean you know, I remember, you know, just getting to hang out with uh, John, former host of the show, and then Fry and Summer when we graduated from college. And I really wasn't sure where, where life was going to take me at that point. It, it comes with a lot of pressure. And so that pressure that I felt at, for me, it came a little bit later, but still part of growing up at 20, 22, 23, uh, versus when these guys are 19. I think that's my biggest problem with this movie, though, is it really seems like the worst best friend movie ever. <laughs> like, I, I watched this whole thing and like it builds you're like well that's a crappy friend thing to do that's another crappy friend thing to do and it culminates at the end of it with them basically quitting because he got hurt i mean they like the the level of mailing it in was even below their crappy ability to begin with to the point where the guy had to tape himself to a bike to win and the whole time i was thinking <laughs> I hate all of his friends. These well, are the right. worst friends. Now, granted, they've had to put up with his awful Italian accent all the time. And <laughs> look, I'm with the dad on this. That was mm -hmm. annoying. Oh, my God. <laughs> that would have driven me insane. I was like, this kid is going to get smacked. This is the uh, 70s. You could hit your kids back then. Like, this is nuts. And, I mean, they suck for each other. Like, 
college and jobs are for losers and we'll do the race to help Dave. But when he's down, we're going to suck. We're going to fold like origami, man. Like the, the one kid gets the one gets the one kid's going to borrow or as I'm sorry, the one kid is going to marry the girl he likes in secret because they were giving him crap about it. They right. got him, you know, he quit his job in front of them because they, you know, it just, the, that is a toxic atmosphere. It is the worst best friend movie ever. I had the same thoughts of like, they're just dragging each other down, man. This was not the, you know, I, I was friends with both of you guys in high school and college. And I, I can't remember a single moment where we were like, no, don't succeed, man. Take, stay here. And This is the prequel movie to like a different movie that gets made called Four Alcoholics with No Dreams in a Bar. <laughs> and this is how they all got there. Yeah. Well, this is just a very interesting take on this movie. I, I never could have seen that coming. I mean, uh, I, I think. I think that the friends didn't think that we we're going to have to ride their bicycles at all. I think they even said as much Just like, Dave will just ride the whole thing and we'll just sit there and watch him do it. But I think Mike is one of the more interesting components of this movie too. There is an enormous amount of, I could do it just as well as them had I gotten into college. I can be just as good of a quarterback. And I think we have this moment in the quarry where that really douchey frat guy challenges Tim to a swim and he believes that he can totally take him on. And then we see that guy is actually a much better athlete. He's swimming far better than, than Dave, and he wants to win so bad. And he yeah. even bangs he his head on a rock. And yeah, like, yeah, I was going to say he's bleeding, and you know, he's probably concussed and uh, can't even finish completely, and his friends have to go in and bail him out of the water. That's how sheerly determined his anger was, his, his insecurity that he was so mad that that was something that he could not have and that he didn't make the cut academically or athletically. And so he's very much in a dark place by the time the race rolls around. He, doesn't, he's, he believes that he has been beaten and that you know every year he's going to watch new kids come up and go to university and they're all going to be passing him up and he's just going to end up being Uncle Rico from Napoleon Dynamite. And um, it doesn't feel good to him. And so he's got a very defeated attitude. So I'm going to bring all my friends with me right into that hole. Yeah. Come on, guys. I think so. I think so. I think there's something of suffering together that he wants them to do. And I think at one point he was even mad and like kind of just like realizing things were falling apart. You know, Moocher is just going like, you know, yeah, we all got to grow up and go our own ways at some point. And he was he was just angry about that. Obviously, it's kind of true. But at one point, Cyril says, I thought that was the point to just waste our lives together, isn't it? Mm. And um, and that anger that burns in Mike as such a complicated, really well-written character, I think. So it's funny that you didn't like uh, Dennis Christopher's character, uh, Dave, as much. I, I found that to be hilarious. Oh, no. I, he was like 70s Michael Sarah. Oh, yeah. thank God. I, I literally have that in my notes, too. I was like, is this Michael Sarah's dad? Right? <laughs> I, I 100% agree with you. I think he looks like Beck, the musician. Yeah. Yeah. Who also could be Michael Sarah's dad. Um, I, I just, yeah, I, that there were certain angles, especially when they were shooting him. I was like, if this, if I didn't know this movie was from the seventies, I would have thought, is that Michael Sarah? This seems like a Michael Sarah ro- role. Yeah, oh God, he, it so does. He awkwardly adopts weird mannerisms and annoys everyone around him. Yeah, this is, this is Michael Sarah before Michael Sarah. Yeah. Have you seen Youth in Revolt where he has a pseudo 
personality where he's a very timid person but then on the uh flip side he has like this tough guy like you know uh persona that he can dip into yes yeah mm-hmm. yeah so maybe maybe that's what you're channeling there chad <laughs> the best michael Sarah part ever was in this is the end where he plays himself and <laughs> that that will forever be the the, the hallmark acting performance of, of of him being him I thought you were going to say Scott Pilgrim because you guys gushed over that one. Oh, I yes. do. Yeah, look, I love it. But he is—he has never been funnier than he was in This Is the End. Like that, yes. that his character in that cracked me up. <laughs> but uh, but coming back around to Dave, I think there's something more to it than just you know. I'm, have we all been through a phase where we were perhaps implying like I went through a phase where I did not really skateboard very well, but I perhaps came off as like I'm a skateboarder. I really I had a skateboard. I could do a few things. So I think there's there's an image that comes with that. Dave, in a way, doesn't want to be who he is. Like he doesn't want to be stuck in this situation. He's choosing other. Like it's like college guy or this, and he's just sitting there in between, circling other, none of the above. And I think Cyril even says like you know it's like you think you're pretty special being Italian. And Dave's like I guess I understand. I'd want to be somebody too. As if to say somebody else. Mm. It's just this, it's this denial and this like putting off of this major decision that has come his way. And he's filled it by, you know, taking up cycling. And it's a great hobby for him. Obviously, you know, his mom said, you know, he was pretty sickly looking before he got into it. And he's in shape. (laughs) But his dad's like, well, now his mind's all rotten. He was a smart kid before. Now, now his mind's mush and his body's great. I, look, I mean, I get the coming of age stuff. I understand the, you know, the dichotomies of growing up. And it, look, there's, there's, there's some good to the movie too. I was so infuriated by how awful they treated each other and how it, it just seemed like a sea anchor the entire time. Like this is when you, when your parents tell you you've fallen in with the round crowd. This, this is it. This is the crowd that they were talking about. Like <laughs> there is, I mean, it's one thing to like give your friends crap. But there's another thing to like intentionally undermine their futures, which is what was happening this entire film. I don't know, Fry. I do feel like my friendship with you increased my chances of going to jail exponentially. (laughs) That's probably true. Are you the bad friend? (laughs) I I might be the bad friend. All right. I might be the Dennis Quaid here. (laughs) (laughs) You're not that angry. No, that's true. Well, let's talk about the parent dynamic of this I, I i thought this was a very warm-hearted movie and it's, it starts off very funny as like a dad who's just like i don't understand what my son's doing and it's making me angry and the same way that you're saying that like i found that annoying fry i think that that's like being reflected off and this quasi anti-italian racist father who's quite a character himself is the mother is bless her heart she is the most patient human being and you can't help but love her because she's just being really patient as Dave goes through this and uh, just trying to see the positive in the situation. I really enjoyed the dynamic of those two parents and Dave as he's struggling with this, I won't call it full-out identity crisis, but this persona that he's taking on. Yeah, I learned new racist terms. I hadn't heard a lot of the things that Ray Stoller was spewing, so, you know, I learned something new every day, I I guess. he The dad was... The dad was tough to deal with, honestly, for me, for a lot of the movie. I felt like he got a little 
funnier towards the end, but in the beginning, he's just he's mean. It's it's spewing racism and like just he's like the friends too. Why does he need to go to college? I didn't go to college. Why isn't this good enough for him? And he, the dad clearly doesn't like where he wound up either, but he's holding back his son. It, yes, his son's incredibly annoying, and I get the frustration there. Like, we're not Italian, and I do like the mom. You better not be converting to Catholicism. Oh, Dave, a, please don't go Catholic on us. Yes, yeah, stuff like that. But the the dad is in the same situation as the friends. It's like, don't succeed. Don't follow your dreams. This is good enough. Like, everyone around Dave sucks, except his, his mom. Well, I think that's the point of it. That's the pressure that Dave feels. In going to college, he will be betraying his father. You know, he even said, like, over, you know, he listens through the wall, like, you know, struggling with it. He's like, he's going to hang that over my head going to college. And you see the dad's dad has that same, you know, kind of feeling that Mike does. It's an anger towards the world around him. And later on, he becomes more vulnerable, but only after Mike is crushed and he becomes vulnerable. And that's when the love for his son really does come out. That's when the tough, that's when the tough guy boomer dad attitude just drops. And uh, or great, I guess that would be a greatest generation dad. Yeah, that's when the greatest generation tough guy act drops when he realizes his son was basically built this dream up, which was false, and then had it come crashing down around him, and he can't help but feel bad for him at that point. You know, he comes home and from the Italian race, and um, it's one of those things where you don't meet your heroes, kind of thing. You know, he he looked up to these people so much, and they made fun of him. He could race with them. Especially as a younger male, you know, who's like, as he gets stronger, I mean, he, he, could, he could be a very impressive cycler, but they, they made fun of him and they, they wrecked his bike and they really hurt him and it crushed his dreams. And so he came home crying and uh, put his arms around his dad. And it's just one of those t- very touching moments where it's just like, oh, I don't even understand how they got away with that. Well, nobody's there to watch it happen, basically. I guess I just I, I assumed that there was some mechanism in place for cycle races that are there to prevent that sort of I mean that was it wasn't just one thing, it was like several things and I was like, God The first one seemed kinda of pranky, like we're gonna like turn your brakes on so you have to pedal real hard. Nobody gets hurt doing that, but jamming your pump in somebody's yeah, spokes and like, flipping you over the bars and off the course, obviously you could kill somebody that way if they land the wrong way. Right. I mean, jokes jokes aside of modern day Tour de France, the old age of Tour de France, the cheating is hilarious. There are people taking naps and then hitching rides in cars. Oh. There's just rampant, hilarious cheating. So yeah, I, it wasn't well monitored as a sport. Uh, Think about it. You this, can't have a referee keep up with everybody. In a car. I, I, well, this is this is not that level of race though. This is just. Yeah, uh, no, I hear you, and I realize that. I just made you mad though, didn't it? Like it's just like, oh, I, I felt so bad for him. <laughs> I've never had to really put thought into how you prevent cheating in a bicycle race because I've never been in one. So it, just the whole time I was like, really, nothing. It actually, it made me sad because it felt like the dad was suddenly justified of all the Italian racism. And then he's so happy to meet these Italians who immediately do something horrendous and awful to a young kid. It's like, well, this isn't going to cause problems later in life. Yeah, you're right. But it was just really interesting to see the father's character once the guard starts to come down. I really loved the moment where he's talking to his wife and she said, maybe you should give him a job at your 
car dealership. And his first thought was, I don't want him to have to work at a used car dealership. And like, really upset about that. Not like, I don't want to hire my son because he sucks at like work and I don't want him working on my lot. He made it come off as that later, but his first thought was like, no, not my son. And she said, um, you know, well, it's you know, good enough for you. And he has this moment, just a little moment, because this tough guy's shell is pretty strong. And he, he cracks it with her and he says, who said it's good enough for me? And she says, well, you did. And then, then the shell's right back up. Well, yeah, of course it's good enough for me. But he's a weird kid. He'll scare off all the customers. And those little moments are very realistic. And there's just, I cannot tell you how good the writing is here. Because characters are not normally constructed this well. And that's why I think, Chad, you're even saying it's getting stuck in this. What is this? Is it funny? Is it, is it a drama? Is it a sports movie? It's so realistic. That's the way life is. If your life was a book, what genre does it fit into? Yeah, it's it's just a weird dynamic for me, and maybe this is just speaking from a position of privilege, but I don't know anyone. It was always made clear to me by my father and by all the men around me in my life, the expectation was to be better than them, and the, it was their heart's desire, and everyone's dad that I knew, and I understand they're lousy dads, but as a dad, you want to see your kids succeed over and above where you are, and you sacrifice whatever it is to accomplish that. So I, I don't know. Again, maybe speaking from privilege here, but it's, that's a hard relationship for me to understand where he's actively rooting for him to just drown in mediocrity. Yeah, I, I think there's definitely parts of this that you have to understand it was a different time. Not everybody... Like we, we have a huge percentage of kids who go to college these days. It wasn't always like that. Yeah. Um, you had a lot more of these, uh, you know, big, uh, uh, splits between, you know, those who could go and those who couldn't and, and staying at home and in a hometown was a lot, like hugely prevalent back then. Like it wasn't odd for someone to go their entire life and not go 20 miles outside of town. So it's, you know, and, and it gets worse the further back in time you go. So, you know, I get all of that piece for this and I, you know, I, I like the dynamics that they put together between the characters in terms of, of, you know, it's right on the cusp of going to college being a more popular option uh, as you go into the 80s and 90s. So I think just knowing that that's, you know, more of a status quo thing, whether they wanted it to be or not back then made more sense to me they depicted this quite well obviously not every college person is a jerk but they did it very well with the characters that they introduced though you had uh rod was the frat guy and he's played by uh hart boker <laughs> who's by the way if you think you recognize him that's the jerk from Die Hard who thinks that he's hot stuff and can negotiate with the terrorists right and in, in, in the tower this guy Hey, Hans, Spreckensy talk. <laughs> yeah. Like that to this day, that is one of the worst, most a-hole lines in, in cinematic history, like spoken by an a-hole in the movie. But when he said Spreckensy talk, I was like, all right, you can shoot him in the head now. Oh, <laughs> he's he's awful in this movie. I mean, he's not even he doesn't have that many speaking lines, but he just drips with. Oh, he's awful. So they do show you what that world is coming off to them as and that division and also even when the head of the university says i live in bloomington and you're not treating my town very well like you're just here for four years and like this is like some 
party spot for you, but this is our home. And there's that division between the school and that. So again, those two worlds seemingly, you know, you could walk down the street and they don't look any different necessarily, but the, the circumstances that they grew up in, whether it be a privilege, the haves or the have nots, it's just, I don't know. It's just, uh, to me, that was one of the most powerful parts of this movie. I do think that I, what kind of going back to what Chad said, one of the parts that I struggled with in this movie was finding what its identity was and to have this love child of uh, the outsiders meets better off dead. Like it wasn't funny enough to be funny and it wasn't gritty enough to be dark. So it just kind of hit this limbo point And I was like, it took me a minute to be like, okay, what am I watching? Interesting. Okay. Cause I mean, if you look at the family dynamic and better off dead, like obviously way kookier, but still going for kooky family dynamic. It's a sports movie. They're going pure comedy on that route, but you still have this kind of greaser towny aspect to it, like outsiders. So I just felt like this did meet in the middle. I'm just not sure if the middle is a genre. So, so what you need is a hamburger animation where uh, there's a dreamlike state. <laughs> and there's a singing. Camera. I don't know. <laughs> what do you think about the cast, though? The performances that we see here. I didn't really have any complaints by, you know, any of the particular people. I think Dennis Quaid has a very defined character, like Chad said. I think that, what's his name? The frat guy, like, clearly, jerk frat guy. Hart Bachner. <laughs> you know, even the dad, I felt, was, was a little bit of a, uh, an established character. So, no, I, did, I think everybody did a good job for what they were doing. I thought it was interesting. Paul Dooley and Dennis Christopher have played father and son. Three times this movie, right. mm. and then they worked again on a film called A Wedding in 1978, and they did it again on uh, Law and Order: Criminal Intent on an episode of that. So uh, PJ Solis, you get her from Halloween Future Fame. So yep, yeah, and Rock and Roll High School as well. That's where I yes, yeah. She was actually originally wanting to play the part of the French girl. She speaks French very well, but uh, she ended up getting this other part of Susie instead. So this is the debut and- of. Daniel Stern. So if you know City Slickers, or I think what you would most know him from is Home Alone. Yeah. <laughs> he's tall and goofy, and there's just something physically. He, he does strike me as this guy who's just like, you know, like, yeah, he said he played basketball, but badly. And like, you know, he didn't do well in school. There's just something that like physically just is nailed by Daniel Stern for this role. I think having knowledge of him prior to this movie actually hurt this role for me because I kept expecting, oh, he's just going to be hilarious. And it, it never really came. He, he was the stupid one here. And that's played throughout his career, or at least often. But his role is more like the dumb friend, but it's not laugh out loud, funny, comedic. It's like befuddled. Yes. I thought he was, I thought he got, under the guise of comedy, again, they're all channeling that inadequate feeling differently, you know? Yeah. And so, you know, Dennis Christopher's character, Dave, is trying to be somebody else. Mike is just a very, very angry individual. And, you know, Cyril is sarcastic and takes this Woody Allen kind of, like, approach and stuff like that. He's just never serious. And, you know, like, they ask, like... How are you guys doing today? He's like, well, uh, we're, you know, we're a little bit concerned about the developments in the Middle East, but other than that, we're okay. You know, I mean, like he's just he doesn't take anything seriously. And sometimes when you can't cut it in any other way, 
it hurts to admit that. So then you you end up kind of saying every, it's all a joke and I'm not taking any of it seriously. But the inside, he lets in a moment as well. Like, you know, my dad just goes, no, I understand. Kind of like a, I knew you couldn't cut it kind of thing. Another very unsupportive family. And you see the pain that's within that underneath the laughing as well. Yeah. He had comedic moments that I, I think I just expected more because I know who Daniel Stern is. When he gets his hand stuck in a bowling ball. That was good. That that could have been played to much more comedic effect. It, as it stood, it just wound up kind of being a useless gag. Like, what a weapon you could use. And I know it... He uses it, it in a fight. Sh- it shatters glass or whatever. But yeah, you're swinging a bowling ball stuck to your fingers at people. That could have done some serious damage. But it it just wound up being kind of a throwaway gag. I I wanted more comedy, especially knowing who Daniel Stern is. For me, the most disconcerting character in this was seeing a young Jackie Earl Haley. Right? Yeah. Um, I remember like, yeah, I I took a real hard look at him when he first came on. And I was like, oh, my God. Like, is he going to put on a burlap sack and just start beating the hell out of... uh, Right, guys. Well, this <laughs> is where it begins. Don't call him short, otherwise he might. I find it interesting that he came from somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Just honestly something I've never had to think about, and then seeing it, I was like, huh, weird. <laughs> yeah, and the cyclists, Ira Schaefer and Gary Bredding, uh, introduced Dennis Christopher and Hart Buckner to the world of bicycle racing to actually give them some credibility for how they're doing this, how they approach it, how they look in the movie. And they spent several weeks with them, training them. And that shows, like, when I'm watching this movie, I don't feel like I'm watching actors. Sometimes when I'm watching, like, a basketball movie or, like, a football movie, I'm starting to feel like there's a, there's a degree of, like, I'm watching actors and I'm okay with that. You know, like, there's a, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief. There's moments in this where I'm just like, I'm not watching an athlete. Or like, I feel like I might be watching an athlete. And that might be because my IQ for watching cycling might not be as high, but it felt, it felt very realistic. And that's credit to Peter Yates as well for how he shots, for how he shoots it. I mean, it helps that the stakes are fairly low. This is the little 500 in Bloomington, Indiana. It's not like this giant high stakes, big prize money. This is just like local... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Podunk town. But even that was it, it was it was a big deal to them because this was their chance to stand up to them and say, you know, like we're not worse than you. We can we can compete with you. Although technically one of them can't compete with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know that that's really going to show the frat boys. It's like, yeah, we beat you in a bicycle race. It's like, yeah, but we have cars and money and girlfriends. I don't know. They seem like they can't lose. Like, like it's that mentality of like I can't lose to these guys. And in the same way that losing that swimming race meant so much to Mike, I'm pretty sure Rod was pretty mad that he didn't win the cycling race. So yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's like Tom Brady losing the Super Bowl. Oh well, I'll have to go home to Giselle Bunch and woe is me. I think he's mad he doesn't have twelve Super Bowls. To be honest with you, it's just when you're when you're that great. That is that is probably true. There's a, I was going to say there's a degree of petty. He's probably sitting at the dinner table being like, I'm telling you, Eli Manning, I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, everybody does. 
David admits in a scene where uh, to Catherine that he's not Italian, but he's actually a cutter. Catherine starts to walk off and then turns back and slaps him across the face. And according to director Peter Yates, he did not like the fake slap. So she started actually striking him. And uh, he had to do over six takes where after a certain point, several onlookers and stuff like that were concerned at the uh, abuse that this poor, poor young man was taking from this woman in the streets of Bloomington. <laughs> right? Did he kick his dog? He has a very slappable face. <laughs> That's true, too. Gosh, uh, yeah, you guys, you guys and your Michael Sarah lookalike connection. There's, there's, <laughs> there's something that's not healthy about your attitude towards Michael Sarah that's showing through here. I would be for whatever movie Michael Sarah's in, him getting slapped. I mean, whether it's relevant to the plot or not. <laughs> what did he do to you? How did he hurt you? <laughs> How did he hurt you? <laughs> that's funny. Peter Yates. We've actually covered Peter Yates before. He's the director here in Breaking Away, but we covered him before on our episode of Bullet, which was a fun episode to do. This is a very different kind of movie. So, Fry, as we're getting more acquainted with Peter Yates' work here, what do you think here? I mean, look, this was a well-written, well-directed movie. I don't have any qualms with that. I do think that it, it, because it hybridized so many different types of movies, that there are, you know, established lines, if you'd say, for it. And maybe this is to its credit. I just, I was a little lost at what I was watching because it wasn't bicycle heavy to start. So the sports movie piece was missing. And then, you know, I kept waiting to laugh at something. So the comedy piece was missing and that's what it's billed as. So I was just confused until I just kind of settled down and started watching the character interactions and stuff like that. Well, I don't want to feed, I don't want to feed you not liking that because I believe it's important to give you the context of who is at stake and why this seemingly small bike race matters so much. But, because uh, without all that stuff before, the intensity of the race and the excitement wouldn't be there. But this did originally exist in the form of two screenplays. One was called The Cutters, and it was about the t- towny c- quarry workers and the other, uh, going against the college. And the other was called The Eagle of Napetown, and that was about the little 500 bike race. And both were written by Stephen Tesh, and Peter Yates worked with Tesh to take both of those scripts to put them together and to make one better screenplay. What you're describing, Fry, is actually because Sam Ryder technically wrote two screenplays and it was combined into one. Sure. Okay. I mean, I get that. You said it felt divided and that might be why. No, I think that's that's valid. David K. Bloss was uh, a member of a cycling team that was based on a 1962 Phi Kappa Psi champions of the Little 500. And David K. Bloss rode 139 laps of that 200 laps. And that team actually won. So there is some based in reality component of the screenplay as well. So uh, the cutter team did actually happen and they did have a super cycler to make it happen. And they stopped letting the people from the town compete when that happened. (laughs) Nice. That was such a weird punishment from the dean or the the president of the university. He's like, "Well, you guys just caused hundreds of dollars of property damage, but now you're going to be in a bicycle race with these high school kids." But they're not good right. enough. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, have you not heard of suspensions, expulsions? Was this not a thing in 1979? We're going to settle things with bicycle races. I want you to know they're on double secret probation. Right. right? I got sent to detention for uh, flipping a pencil on a ruler, and these guys are entered into bicycle races. I, I did think that the uh, the dean of the college was very dean of a college. <laughs> <laughs> like that, that was 
that was that was on on point. Yeah, well casted. Yes. Yeah, Peter Yates considered this film to be one of the three best movies that he had directed, and it's one of his absolute like one of the things that he's most proud of that he had done here. He, I didn't read that in, when we did Bullet, but I have to assume it would be in there because uh, that was a very good movie too. Yeah, I I've seen two of his movies, and this is one of the two best movies that I've seen of his. Because <laughs> because we don't so stop, we'll... we'll cover every movie eventually made. So uh, just just wait. We'll get these things start overlapping. <laughs> right. Connections are start to be made. It's a circle, Chad. Time is a flat circle. He's like, he's like Thanos. I am an ine- inevitable. He's, he's inevitable. Yeah. I was kind of going like with the arrival way with the uh, the circle. I feel like that's Quentin Tarantino for me. He's just like, I am inevitable. These movies that don't even have Quentin Tarantino in the name. I'm like, ah, you tricked me. He, he had something to do with it. Admit yes. it. He had something to do with it. Yes, he's in the background of the little 500. I don't know. Well, they didn't have nearly enough people in the background. They could have used them there because yes. initially the student foundation only had, they wanted 20,000 people. But IU has a three-week spring break in 1978 but due to a coal strike the film had to be shot later in may and june where there are no college kids to be had um so as you would imagine in a college town they're hard to come by so instead of having twenty thousand student extras they've only got three thousand i feel like you could just say free beer and you would suddenly get twenty thousand college kids from wherever easily like yes. they would come in droves from where they they'd come from the next state over you would have had uc people at this filming <laughs> Yeah, did you try? Well, they got 3,000, and so Peter Yates had to shoot very creatively, cutting and using closer angles, which I think makes the moment more intense, but to make it look like there's not a sad number of people watching this race. And it doesn't show, really. I mean, if you really, really go looking for it, which I was looking for it on like my third pass to the movie preparing for this, I was like, yeah, I see some empty bleachers in the top right corner, but the symphony music's playing. You got you got all the intensity. The the cuts are fast. You really don't notice unless you're really looking for it. It's a local bike race. How many right? people show up to said things in the first place? Yeah, <laughs> I had the same thought. Like, of course there are empty bleachers. It's a local bike race. Bike race. Who cares? This this guy's dad didn't even come until like the fourth <laughs> quarter. I mean, come on. That was pretty awesome, though. I mean, that showed the acceptance of the father, accepting this this part of his son. Again, his son kind of dropped the Italian persona, but then that, that connection that they have reformed here really shows up. He's really proud of him, and you can see it. I love watching him in the car, like, sitting there like, yeah, go get him kind of thing, or, like, the, the moment of concern, like, when he goes down. And uh, even when it looks like they're going to lose, and he knew that his son was better than everybody else, and he's like, he tried. You know, like, he was... He was the best one out there, and it's not fair what happened to him, but he tried, I'm proud of him for trying. But he got on, and he did it anyway. So, I mean, that whole, especially given what you said, Chad, like, he didn't seem very nice. He didn't seem like a dad you would want to have in the first part of this movie. I stand behind that even in the second part. Certainly, he's not a guy you would want to eat spaghetti or lasagna with. No. (laughs) Don't give me that ID food. (laughs) I don't know how offensive that word is, because I I haven't ever heard it. It's... We apologize to our Italian listeners if you've ever been called this obscure slur. (laughs) Yeah, I feel like Christopher Walken's character would have come up with far more creative ones. So what do you think about the atmosphere that this movie creates? They went and they shot in Bloomington, Indiana, which they went on site to get authenticity. 
that is a real quarry, which is really impressive. Something really beautiful about it. What do you think about where they went to shoot this, Fry? Oh, I'm 100% behind that part. I, I think IU was very gracious uh, in allowing them to film there. I think there's various ways that could have gone wrong. I'm glad it didn't. It's one of the, the real gem parts of this movie. Yeah, I'm always for shooting in the area you're trying to depict. I think it adds authenticity, realism. So good for them, good for IU for allowing this to happen. Like I said, it, it can go wrong, but it's unhelpful when it's a sound stage in California and you're de- depicting economic desperation in a small town. Like, this doesn't work. You're in Hollywood. Go out to these real places. Go out to Matewan, West Virginia, and film your coal mines out there. I've never fully forgiven Mothman prophecies for the shot of the Holiday Inn in Charleston, West Virginia. And I was like, well, that's a fake hotel in the middle of nowhere without a parking lot. Yeah, we have a nice hotel. Like, yeah, I was like, we have actually a pretty cool Holiday Inn. Right? It's not cool. (laughs) (laughs) Going here, I think we talked about this in the Winter's Bone episode, which there's a lot of connection between Winter's Bone and this movie, I think. Far less meth. Yes, less meth. But um, th- still, the, the notion of the haves and the have-nots show, show through. And if you want a darker movie, as you said, Brian, if you want to decisively feel something, that decisively made a choice. Um, <laughs> this movie feels better than that movie. Um, That's true. <laughs> um, so. and, and Chad, listen, you do not know what Mike was doing when he goes home with his defeatist attitude. And his, you know, grudge holding. There could have been tons of meth. Could have been some meth. Of this movie. Maybe a little bit of meth, yeah. I mean, clearly he was spending 90% of his time working out. Good grief. Yeah. He could have been making meth for all you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Going to Indiana was so pivotal because of the movie was it was written there. So in, in essence, the, it's so part of what they're doing here. But they could show the quarries. They could show the stone cutting manufacturers. Like, I love it when Dave's dad goes to the quarry himself. And you see that connection as it's not sitting well with him. And kind of assume he's looking for a job for his son. And he's realizing post-industrial decline at this late part of the 70s as you go into the 80s. Like the economy is really slumping, and, and the, that decline coming off of post-war era is not going well. And his mother said, like, the jobs that were there for you aren't there for him. And we're only at the beginning of that. It's going to get uglier, actually. And so that is akin to a time and a place where this is in Indiana that was just so well. And as you pointed out, Chad, like, shooting this in it's just uh, Irvine, California, would not have been the thing to do. And uh, there's an authenticity that you just can't get any other way. And sure enough, there were lots of limestone buildings to be had in Indiana and Indiana University. So I actually really like the little, hey, thanks to the university. I don't think that was heavy handed at the end. I thought that was really cool to say, hey, thanks. And they even played the school, the school fight song. Yeah, Yeah, 100% agree with that. The rocks of the limestone quarry were actually swimming scenes were used to build the Empire State Building. Dennis Quaid said in an interview. Oh, that's another fun piece of little trivia there. So I had to work a little piece of architecture in when I can. Of course. <laughs> the rooftop is the name of that ledge, though, in the quarry that Dennis Quaid jumps off of in the quarry scene. And uh, yeah. the owner. Which is heavily Well, they've, they have filled it in. Uh, they have had a number of accidents and even some deaths in that quarry. So it's beautiful. So now, now that it's haunted... Um... Get a whole right. different yeah yeah it's beautiful it's uh and it's a shame that people 
died there because there's something really almost like 2001 like you could almost expect to see a monolith sitting in it it's so surreal to see such a you know precise cut taken out of the land um yeah it's a really stark beginning to this movie so let's talk about the wardrobe and how they made you feel there was a strong contrast in what they're wearing versus what the college kids are wearing yeah i mean it's definitely very outsidery again i didn't make that uh, comparison just for fun it's it's like you definitely get that from dennis quaid more than the others oh yeah yeah the even the cutters jerseys they're just plain white t-shirts versus everybody else i did think the helmets were interesting this was an interesting snapshot where it's essentially like a colander on their head it's complete or pool noodles it, it was just completely useless so much of your skull is exposed so that that was a nice flashback to before safety standards were really a safety standard. I felt like Moocher felt more poor than the other families. Really? Well, his I dad would... was kind of not present. I would have gone with Mike. Really? Yeah, he had the, the jeans and white shirt look. He, he did. Brian nailed it with the outsider's greaser type look. Uh, okay. His dad was a cop. At least you knew. Yeah, I was gonna say, I felt like Mike's parents yeah. were. You know, it was established that all of their parents were working in the quarries. Dave's dad mentioned that, but Moocher's dad wasn't present. Like he had gone off and left the family, and he said he was hurting, and he just wanted to sell the house just to get some money. There was some implied nature of like, I'm not supporting my family, and I kind of felt like his clothes looked a step down from the others. Hmm. Running off to the courthouse to get married. I think also just getting an actor who. Well, obviously he had to be short to fit the role, but I mean he had some pretty fierce acne too, and that also goes to show you like your parents aren't taking into a dermatologist. It's reinforcing of the haves and the have-nots. I need to look up when dermatology became a profession. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to go that far. We'll just wildly speculate. Not in time for Tommy Lee Jones, I'll tell you yeah. that. We'll wildly speculate. It was after. It was post 1979. But and then they make. The frat guys just seem so terrible. Again, I mean, it's almost one of those things where he's just like, most guys won't date a girl unless she's in a sorority, but I'm the exception. So she's like, talk and roll, get out of that car. He's awful. <laughs> because I realize that this is going to be a key thread and probably the, the thing that holds this particular episode up, American Dermatology originated in New York City in 1836. Oh, oh, okay. So, yeah. All right. Well, the more the more you know. I like that. We yeah. need to get more facts like that in here. Kudos to you, Brian. Oh, <laughs> yes, we'll throw in dermatology quizzes. When did this occupation become a thing? On which episode did we discuss the origination of American dermatology? Yes. <laughs> but yeah, back back to the movie. It's dormy. Like again. I went to college. We all went to college. At no point did I ever hear anyone put down a girl for being young enough to live in the dorm. Like, Again, you didn't get in the fraternity, Chad. Sorry. I I was invited to the history fraternity. So there. But no, they didn't have a uh, frat house or a frat culture. And I did not join. <laughs> I saw a guy walk into class one time completely covered in Vaseline as part oh. of his rush. And I was like... Yep. Uh, yeah. No. <laughs> I'm yeah. good. Rush week was weird. I'd see people yeah. just running for their lives, and then a bunch of people jump out of a truck and beat him, and then throw him in the truck. I, I had the same reaction as you, Fry, of like, yeah, that that doesn't seem appealing. 
This is a hard pass. <laughs> I, I didn't really encounter many fraternity members in my time in college, but um, I, I definitely got the, the vibe of like, I would do the things they're doing to not get, be in the fraternity, like to not have those obligations and to like, like you could haze me so I could just not be in that because I don't want to be around them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I watched there's... a frat. I watched a frat house burn to the ground the morning after uh, uh, Halloween. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Good times. Yes. I don't know how much of that I can use. <laughs> <laughs> I well. hope none of it. I hope we've wasted everybody's time for the past yes. six minutes. No soundtrack on this one. If you did, if if you wanted to get the Italian feeling, they're bringing it on this one. They've got operas. They've got symphonic masterpieces, as well as Dennis Quaid opens the movie with his own improv folksy country song so a lot of fun music here and it was nominated for an oscar on this brian what do you think about the music here i could have done with less opera (laughs) did it remind you of a looney tunes episode because the barber of seville shows up in looney tunes an inordinate amount of times it it just it it was a lot i'll I'll admit that that i felt for the dad in a in a you know in a small way that's exactly what you're supposed to feel like that's a weird th- that's a weird thing to have blasting through your house in 1979. I thought that's what was funny about it. He was American. Yeah, and he was be. as American as pumpkin pie until this summer. <laughs> I do appreciate the small town having apparently a well-stocked vinyl store that includes a bunch of Italian operas. Like good for Bloomington, Indiana. Right. Yeah. I am just giving Russell so much unusable material. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. This is, uh, yes, I, I, it is hard. <laughs> um, I will not get better, um, I promise. And I got to say, the race scenes were where this shines the best. I love it when he's he's riding with the truck and Nathan somewhere is going to roll over in his grave like someday, like, or just, he's, he's just going to be very unhappy that this will live out there. I don't know the symphony music here. But it's great. And I think when he's traveling, uh, just racing with the truck, there's just something so compelling with that scene. The, the music really elevates that scene. And this movie is listed as the number eight most inspiring movie by the AFI. And I think the music goes a long, long way to elevate these moments. And like Chad said, the stakes in the globally are relatively small, but because you've connected with these characters and because they're playing this monumental music, it doesn't feel small. It feels really important. And so you, know, you got the Barber of Seville overture playing in there as well during the race. And it's just something is really elevated to me by the music, as well as, to your point, Brian, some of it just feels out of place. And that's Dave. Dave is out of place. And I think that that's reinforcing of this hilarious He's dressing Italian. He's got these like tight black shirts on. He's he shaved his legs. I mean, he's he is very different, and the music that he's listening to is very different, and it looks out of setting in his household. It looks out of setting. Yeah, yeah. I I'm not sure what would have happened if my dad walked in on me shaving my legs, but it, it was probably it would have been similar to the dad here of just walking out. Yes, talk to my mom. It's like he. Like just the look of defeat. That was a good scene. He's shaving. <laughs> What's so? His legs. For whatever reason, that scene reminded me of the John Mulaney stand-up, where it's like, "I found two cigarettes and a Cosmopolitan under your son's bed." And he's like, "How does John know how to make a Cosmopolitan?" 
all right. Are we ready to go into some superlatives? Absolutely. Sure thing. Fry, why don't you take this one first? MVP. Uh, I went with Indiana University. Okay. Good yeah, choice. Yeah. Chad, MVP. I went with Peter Yates. We've talked about this. I think it's a competently put together movie, and it speaks to Yates's ability to direct his cast and his shots. Yeah, he gets a lot of the feels from the feeling moments, but he also gets the excitement, which you know he can do excitement from Bullet. So uh, that 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 seemingly comes easy to him, but the heartfelt moments from him are, are definitely there. Good choice. I'm going with the Oscar winner here, Steve Tesh, as the writer of this. And to me, I think I've mentioned it earlier just there's a level of construction of these characters that is so good and you just don't get it in a lot of movies and there's something that's just something very warm and they're all they all feel real and they all connect in interesting ways so it's really interesting just from a writing standpoint to see how they're all pushing up against each other and how they influence each other this world feels like it existed before this movie and it feels like it exists after this movie and i think that's that is a really good thing for a writer to do and even though he has befuddled chad with this genre <laughs> that's fair brian best supporting actor uh, i went with dennis quaid on this one i felt like i got the most feeling from him it was the most identifiable i guess i could have with one of the characters and when i'm you know when you're on a movie that that seems a little unstable in terms of its you know point and direction you tend to cling to people you're more familiar with and he was definitely the character that i was most familiar with in the sh- in the movie interesting and angry maybe fry is that angry i said he wasn't but maybe he was so <laughs> chad uh best supporting actor daniel stern cyril i enjoyed his guitar playing scene i liked the witty responses and i genuinely wanted more screen time for this character this the serenade scene was pretty funny <laughs> yeah yeah the uh somehow it doesn't seem like a oh so romantic moment it's just like just again so out of place it was very cringeworthy it's it's cringe before we get into i think that's where the michael sarah references are coming from because he does a lot of cringe comedy ben stiller too it was a cringy scene an embarrassing scene but daniel stern's so happy to be involved in it yes yeah i know and and he gets beat up afterwards too. He definitely gets the bad end of that deal. Yeah, him running with the guitar was pretty good though. Yeah, my best supporting actor is going to go to Paul Dooley as Ray Stoller's uh, dad. He was just so great. I wish I could pick Barbara Berry and Jack Earl Haley as well. And Dennis Quaid was very good. Just to me, this cast was amazing all the way through. But Paul Dooley is this large presence that carries this movie yes dennis christopher's character is the main character undergoes a great character transformation but as far as a support character goes he demonstrates a great deal of transformation too so it's nice to see that tough under tough tough guy have a heart for his son in there too yeah uh, and i thought he did both of those things very well <laughs> very funny as uh, the tough guy dad too so hidden gem Brian. I went with Robin Douglas on this. She, I'm a huge Battlestar Galactica, both new and old fan, and uh, she plays Jamie Hamilton, which was one of the main characters in the 1980s version. I like Robin Douglas, too. She gets the slap right, she gets the charm schoolgirl right, and I, I enjoyed her parts, and it all came off very realistic. Yeah. I'll tell you what, the other thing I really like about her is she doesn't come back like in these movies, I'm so mad you lied to me. And then they end up getting together at the end. 
I was very happy. That was that was just it. Like you lied to me. How dare you? Bye. You won the small town bicycle race. All is forgiven for your hours of lies. Yeah, my hidden gem is going to be PJ Souls. Yep. I just think I enjoy seeing her in movies at this point because she just pops in for a tiny, tiny little role and it might just be a little bit of like, oh yeah, rock and roll high school, Halloween, like, you know, it's just like, I'm, I would just might, might be a positive association of an unexpected face to pop in. So very good. But your Dean pick earlier was pretty good too. <laughs> recast. If you had to recast somebody and put somebody else in their place. I'm uh, recasting Dennis Christopher, actually. And this is where I have in my notes who looks like he could be Michael Sarah's dad. Um, (laughs) I would recast him, and they're almost the exact same age, with young Willem Dafoe. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. And (laughs) Russell's like, no. That that hurt. Russell's like, please don't cast the Greek Goblin as young, happy Italian kid. No, I, I really like Dennis Christopher. You don't think he could play that kind of like loose insanity really well? I do, but I tried to cast young Willem Dafoe in a happy role earlier, and I got shut down. I think it was, I don't remember the movie now. This is us not remembering anything we do. Hey, follow, follow your dreams, Chad. Don't let them keep us down. No, I'm with you. We will Let's have ca- young Willem Dafoe. Let's make young Willem Dafoe happy and not hunting Peter Parker. Okay. Chad, if you had to recast somebody, who would it be and who are you putting in their place? For me, I'm recasting Dennis Quaid. I honestly just felt he he looked a little bit too old for the part here. And I'm going to help Fry out here. He's going to come to my side. I'm going to cast Kevin Costner. He'd still be 24, but he's two years younger than Quaid. Other than the obvious Michael Sarah recast, but yeah, Kevin Costner. I do admit that Dennis Quaid does look at least two years older than everybody else. Like <laughs> I, I throughout the entire movie, I was like, he's older than them, right? Like he needs to be. I assume he was held back. I just thought he was this guy that's like, look, I've been out of it for a while now, and that's why I'm so cynical, and and I need you guys to see that you're just like me, and like I just felt like he's the guy who had been doing it longer than they had. Yeah, yeah uh, this movie is so solidly cast, I had a very hard time doing this. But I did think that Robin Douglas's part could be played by perhaps other people, just be- on the virtue of she doesn't have a lot of time on the screen without interacting with Dennis Christopher's character. So I, I think that this could have been played by a number of people, not that she did a bad job in any way, shape, or form. I plugged Nancy Allen in there for this one, but it's a tough call. I, I, I had a hard time recasting this one. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. Best shot. If you had to pick a best shot, Fry. The various shots at the quarry, I think you could probably take a snapshot from any one of them, and, and that would work for me. But uh, I, I felt like that's where the most, I guess, heartwarming pieces of the movie came out of is like their place like that sense of of ownership being townies yeah yeah chad what was your best shot so the scene itself is called the ecstasy ride it's called that after meeting kathy and it's really well shot it's hard to get that dopey happy expression on a bike and getting that all pieced together that you can you can feel that young love, so I really like the shots for the ecstasy ride. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. I enjoyed kind of a two-parter. The juxtaposition, I like the night shot of Dave and his dad walking on the Indiana campus, 
and as his dad's mm. kind of looking up at the work that he had done in place, proud of it. And he even said, like, the funny thing was after they built it, like, we just didn't belong anymore. That contrasted with the scene, what, what it took to make it. We see him walk into one of these cutting, stone cutting facilities. It's loud. It's got moving mechanical arms. It's all rusted out. It's, you know, it's open air. It looks like it'd be very cold in the winter to work there. You see the world that he had come to, to what it was that he helped make. And also he's telling you how underappreciated and the level of disconnect that's in there. So uh, I'm kind of cheating by using two, but I think that it just goes into showing the two worlds in this movie through those two shots. That's a good, good picks. I like that. Brian, what was your favorite scene in this movie? Uh, drafting behind the 18 wheeler. Oh, like you were saying, the, 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 the music interchanged or intermixed with that. And then the whole idea that the, the truck driver then gets pulled over at the end for driving too fast. I was like, that's, that's a nice scene. That's a really nice scene. That gave me so much anxiety. I was like, what if he has to stop for any reason whatsoever? <laughs> I, In the middle of the interstate? I, have you driven lately and looked around at any person ever? There are people that will just slam on their brakes for no good reason. It's Indiana, man. It's all flat. You can see whatever it is coming from 700 miles away. (laughs) Having driven the interstate through Indiana quite a bit, um, it's it's fairly desolate. (laughs) I was going to say, Chad, we grew up in West Virginia. We live in Pittsburgh and Western Pennsylvania. There are a lot of hills here. I think think it's hard not to fall asleep in Indiana. That's the the number one challenge when you're driving. (laughs) I've driven Nebraska, but he drops his CB radio or something, a little handheld. He goes and hits on the brake to uh, retrieve that. I don't know. I worried for this kid's life, and you're making me. Uh, you're making me the ridiculous one here. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it, anything can anything happen. Can happen. Look, I'm not. I'm not. You've watched too many that. horror movies, Chad. Listen, listen, kid, yes. <laughs> fi- Wrong final turn. destination. I will not drive behind anyone towing logs ever. Like I will pull off to the oh, side I, of the dude, road. Oh, dude, I, I hear here on that. I <laughs> every time I see a log truck, that's what I think of. Tangent, yep. but. I gotta say, anytime someone says don't drive behind a log truck, Stevie Wonder was a passenger. Obviously, he wasn't driving. That's not a joke. Um, so he was a passenger. <laughs> and one of the logging trucks un- uh, lost its haul. And it bounced up, and it came through the window and, like, smashed him. And, like, he had some serious damage and a very difficult recovery from that. So, like, and, like, uh, you know, like, oh, we were all afraid for Tracy Morgan kind of thing. That happened to Stevie Wonder. So... No kidding, like what Chad's saying, like, don't drive behind log trucks. So uh, there's your concerned parent moment. Uh, In the follow-up movie, uh, how did death finally get him? What are you talking about? Who, the the bike rider? No, if Stevie Wonder obviously cheated death by not being killed by the logging truck. So in in the next Stevie Wonder movie... Oh, okay, sorry. I got him. Final destination. Thank you. I I needed a little help there. Sorry. Yeah, the electric keyboard shorted out and prior to the stage. Sorry, I didn't. I I did not pick up on that train that you left the station on. Sorry, yes. I was at the platform. I I was now on my PSA your... moment as well with Chad. Like I was coming to Chad's. No, no. Now it's your turn to fail. The I podcast, failed miserably. So yeah. just... <laughs> normally, normally I find those moments failure. to be funny at all cost, and I I dropped the ball. I was going real serious. Listen, kids, don't drive behind log trucks. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's gonna be someone writing in hey i looked on wikipedia stevie wonder did not die from being electrocuted 
<laughs> now I have to keep all of it. Stevie Wonder, in fact, is still alive. So, <laughs> so still not. Yes, dead. this has all been elaborate, elaborate, and still very talented. <laughs> oh, we do not value your time, listeners. Not one bit. <laughs> all right. So, so anyways, my best Chad scene. Best scene. Yes, my best scene was the bike ride at the end. I that almost feels like cheating because it's the climax of this movie, but it was it reminds me a lot of Ben Hur, and I think that's really high praise. It's exhilarating. Yeah, for sure, and less deadly than the Ben Hur one. Yes, nobody nobody died in this one. But my best scene is going to be Dave and his dad walking on the university campus. I did mention this before in my best shots moment. It's just a very heartfelt moment where his dad. Is basically giving him license. You need to take this. This is your future, and I want you to have a good future. He said that I took the college exam, and he's like, I'm not going. He's like, why? I want you to. And it's the direct opposite of everything he's gone around the house yelling the whole movie. But in the moments where the hard shell come down are just so good, and this is a wonderful, heartfelt moment, and it's very hard not to pick the scene when Dave comes home crying, and he hugs his dad, because that's the turning point for this entire relationship. Um, and I wanted to pick that, but this is where the payoff gets to. It's because Dave dropped the Italian act, came home and said, you know, dad. And he's like, not Papa. And so right. once Dave isn't ashamed, and that's what I haven't talked about that. Like it's it, Dave was ashamed of who he was and that hurt his dad. The home that you grew up in is not good enough. That's our name. We speak English. This is who we are. And you've completely rejected everything of who we are, and it hurts. And obviously, the dad's too tough shell to sit there and say, you've hurt me. But that's palpable. And so the mother is the only one in this whole equation who truly understands everybody. And it's, uh, and like I said, she's got a heart of gold for being so patient. So. so Dave goes to college, and the dad's like, ha, now you know all about debt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very good there. So uh, best wardrobe or makeup moment. Fry. I mean, they all kind of had their own vibe to them. I think the thing I liked was that you could tell that they all came from maybe different social circles because they don't dress alike. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, I think Chad, you asked, what, is, what put these people together? It's like, there's, there is the concept of being the leftovers. And like, yeah. exactly. I mean, um, in fairness, if you went to your friends, do you really, like, does it obviously make sense of like everybody fits a certain mold like we're not always so like that table's the goth kids and that table's the you know um that table's the stoners and that like it doesn't really work that way quite so much in real life your friends i don't think most of the times are so categorically definable as that yeah we we definitely had a bit of like you don't fit in certain areas come come join our clique why not see leftovers yes leftovers are very good yeah yeah and it, it does make for interesting dynamics when you have people coming at, you know, you know, taking this section of life from a different, maybe not a different point of view as their socioeconomic status and what their parents used to do, but because they all kind of had their own, you know, one kid plays guitar. So, you know, one kid's obsessed with Italian bike racing. Like they all had one guy's a quarterback. Like those are all very drastically different n- niches from a high school perspective yeah chad what's your best wardrobe or makeup moment i think i'm gonna go for lack of wardrobe do you guys feel like dennis quaid specifically requested shirtless scenes 
Dude's working feel, out. Dude's working out. <laughs> dude, it's like constantly at a quarry, man. I mean, they're swimming. I feel like he requested those scenes, and I really don't blame him. Like, we didn't need a swimming scene, but if I had abs like he did, he had an eight pack, I would have that written into my contract. Like, I'm going <laughs> to take off my shirt at least half this movie. And the ladies were probably appreciative of so it. So Chad's imagining him arguing with Peter Yates. It's like, no, see, Mike wouldn't have a shirt on in the pizza place. They're not going to serve him without a shirt. It says right here, at least 30 minutes of screen time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, you work for that. Like, I'm impressed. I would have that written in. <laughs> so my best wardrobe or makeup moments definitely got to be the leg shaving scene. It's, it's, I guess, lack of, but um, it's just really funny to see him up there with the leg in the sink and then his dad just kind of coming back and awestruck. So I do think that the wardrobe is on point, though, to nail the division between the two sides, but just that, that culture shock in 1979 to him. Very funny. Yeah. Change one thing, Brian. I completely agree with uh, Chad on this. I think I took a different uh, angle on it, but my change one thing was Daniel Stern didn't have enough purpose in this film. Like he was literally just a plot device to give a guitar player for his serenade. And that was it. I, I would have liked to have seen more, character use there so i could understand maybe more his place in the dynamic well i, I, I think i think you find something there because he didn't have somebody around him to support he was lonely and at the end of the bike race if you look around mike's got his parents you know sorry not mike uh, dave's got his parents um you know mike's having a moment and uh, his brother you know moocher has nancy and daniel stern's character cyril has nobody and he does kind of just look around like who do hmm. i celebrate with and like, you know, like my dad's never proud of me and he's not present and he isn't proud of me. And so kind of what you're saying, that emptiness, if you look and I think maybe I'm reading too much into it. He doesn't get as much development as the other three. So you're not wrong about that. But I think there's I think that's because he's feels like he's fallen through the cracks. Gotcha. That's fair. Change one thing for chat. I would have done a little more exposition on the little 500. I think I would have made it clear that it was a team sport. This may just be a short attention span on my part, but I kind of feel like it came out of nowhere, that I just missed something. Because all of a sudden we're on a porch and Dennis Quaid has a bicycle and I'm very confused why he's talking about, well, we're, we're going to do this or we're not going to do this. I'm like, what do you mean we? I'm, I, that scene at the college was very short out of nowhere and I just, I needed build up. There was a scene in the quarry where they wanted Dave to ride and they, he wouldn't, remember? And it yes. was clear that they had to have a team of four. And Mike was the one saying, we got four, don't we? Yeah, I I just wanted more build up or something. It, it, it seemed like they almost forgot about this and then it got pushed to the end. Huh, interesting. I did like how, how angry he was as somebody who's enthusiastic and passionate that he had to ride on such a crappy bicycle. Like, it, it, it made me like, you know, like Fry's a very good skier, uh, like much better than I am. And it, it made me sit there and say like, we want you to, we want you to ski down the hill on these 1981 skis. <laughs> I've always been kind of morbidly curious, like just give me a, me a two pieces of wood circa like 17 something Norway just to see. Hey, if you need to know what to get Brian for next Christmas, that's it. Wooden, wooden, wooden skis. Wood. I mean, I'd try it. Uh, my change one thing is what Brian had said as well, that Cyril is uh, overlooked and his dad 
not being present as much is a part of that. But we don't get moments as much where he becomes vulnerable. We could do more with him when when he gets beyond the sarcastic, funny routine. We see moments that he wanted to go to college when talking to Dave, when the, just the two of them are walking and seeing their dynamic of just being together with each other. But we see moments of, we get much better glimpses into Moocher and Mike's world than we do with uh, Cyril. And I wish, because I love all these characters so much, I also wanted more Cyril time. Yep. But he doesn't have any other set of characters to... Like, there's no Nancy for him. There's, like, Mike had a brother. Like, there's just nobody to tie you to his world. Sure. More more Daniel Stern. Yeah. I support it. Uh, the wet bandits need to strike again. <laughs> <laughs> I did also think that there wasn't clear timeline, by the way. Like, if I were going to criticize something, it wasn't real clear how long Dave had to get a job. They said he had a year, but was there any pressure on him? I mean, what, you know, it wasn't really clear like i think that would be good to have some sense of like you know dave being like i'm avoiding doing what i need to do to get into the real world languishing in that like post-graduation zone i think just adding an element of time might add some pressure Hmm. best quote of which there are so many good ones brian the only thing i'm afraid of is wasting the rest of my life with you guys i thought that was the point yeah all right uh chad What's your best quote? Depressing quote, but everybody cheats. I just didn't know. Well, now you know. Yeah, that was a real coming of age kind of moment where you're, yeah, that, that, that felt like, that, again, I mentioned, like, don't meet your heroes kind of thing. Like, uh, it, it's a cruel world. Growing up sometimes kind of sucks. That's a loss of innocence moment. Yeah. Yeah, the dad's already been caught cheating customers, and then he's just going to kick his son when he's down. And he's like, yep, thumbs the rules. Right. Life's pretty hard for yeah, it's pretty hard for a lot of people, and that's that's this world that they they are in, and that does that is truthful in this case. So I'm gonna go a whole other direction, also from uh, uh, Dave's dad, and it's gonna be refund, refund, refund. Are you crazy? Refund. And he even wakes yes, up channeling Herm Edwards. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking too. He even he even wakes up from a coma and or sorry from a from a heart attack from being sedated. Refund. 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 Playoffs. Playoffs. <laughs> oh man, I, I, I didn't have to go back and revisit this movie in order to uh, know my best quote coming in. I, I remember the first time I saw him uh, being like, "Oh God, did he have a heart attack? Is he dead?" And then like, then he like resuscitates, and he's still mad and hasn't skipped a beat. I died laughing. So when you said like you didn't laugh once in this movie, Friday, that 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 made me sad in my heart. <laughs> I am happy yeah. you picked that. I also loved it when the dad's like, he's never tired. He's never miserable. And his mom's like, he's young. He's like, well, when I was young, I was tired and miserable. Right. I, that, that was the most relatable he'd ever been to me. I was like, yep, okay. <laughs> All right, we've come full circle. And uh, on a five-star scale with half-star intervals, Brian, on a five-star scale with half-star intervals, what would you rate Breaking Away from 1979? Uh, I gave it three stars. Um, again, I it it was a rocky watch for me. Now I own it now, so I get to give this more more chances in the future. But uh, yeah, I'd say on a on a first and second watch basis, it just it didn't connect with me well. Okay, okay, I'm I'm hurt. This is this is um <laughs> yeah. Chad, do you want to kick me while I'm down, or do you want to pick me back up? What's what's it gonna be? 
So we've talked about this, Russell. The first half of this year, our movies, I'm struggling. This has been very, very difficult for me. I'm not giving out good ratings to our movies. This one, I think, has room to grow. I'm going to give it three and a half stars. It is the first movie that falls into the Chad Likes This category. Oh, thank goodness. Yeah. So okay. so the the it feels a little bit disconnected from the final moments from the first half. I'd like a little bit more cohesion, but I really do think it's got a great story. I enjoyed it, and I think it has room to grow. So three and a half for now, but I think it's got a higher ceiling. All right. And um, this may surprise you, but I gave this a five stars. <laughs> I know, I'm right? Uh, but anyway, this is one of my top 100 movies of any genre, and it definitely is. I mean, it's right there between Remember the Titans and this for my favorite sports movie. I love this movie. So, wow. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very, very discriminate in handing out fives. I, I think yeah. if a movie makes me above a certain degree of, if, 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 I, if it does, it, if it does it for me a certain point, you're probably going to at least get over 4.5. And when it's this well made, uh, not to steal Ebert's words, but I mean, when it's this well made and it's like, I mean, you just sit there and go like, oh. Why don't other movies get made this well? This is so good. The writing, the direction, the acting, and it's, it's worth telling, and it's just so good for me. So it, it checks all the boxes, and some of them with multiple check marks and uh, multiple colors of ink. Like, this is, uh, there's nothing that this doesn't do for me. I, I think it's more interesting that it's your, your favorite sports movie. I think there's probably at least two to three hockey movies specifically that I would put above this one. But it can't all right? be D3, The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> Thank you, all the Lords, Ladies, and Knights of the Retro Movie Roundtable. We invite you to reach out to us. We want to hear from you. So subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Give us a like on Facebook. Follow us at, at Twitter, at movie underscore retro. Email us on retromovieroundtable at yahoo.com. And producing and providing this podcast is fun, but not free. So we invite you to support the show on our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash retromovieroundtable. Any contributions will go towards making the show better for you, the listeners. As always, thank you for listening. Be good to each other. And watch more movies, Brian. Come on, Tom. Say it with me, you pancake-eating mother clucker.